I had a very good friend long ago. Our laughter was spontaneous and constant. We shared pretty much the same outlook on life. You could rightly say we were bosom buddies. Our bond was built around baseball. We played it. He was far better than me. We coached it. We taught preteen boys how to play the game. That was our summer job for the Park District in our hometown of Rock Island, Illinois. My friend's name was Richie Lauk. In late 1969, there came the lottery. Every draft-age American male would be assigned a number. The lower the number, the higher the likelihood that you'd be drafted for military service. By the luck of the draw, Richie was assigned a low number. Figuring he'd be drafted, he chose to enlist, hoping to remain stateside. That was not to be. The Army trained him to be a medic and sent him to Vietnam. The job of medic in Vietnam was high risk. Richie was with the 1st Cavalry, among the first troops sent into combat in Cambodia. In my Bravo company, I was the only medic to survive out of four. You start asking questions about, well, how long did medics last in, in Vietnam? Not too long. Richie came home with a silver star, bronze star, and three purple hearts. To my everlasting regret, I had failed to stay in touch with Richie during his tour in Vietnam and in the decades that followed. Different paths. Life can do that if you allow it to. In recent years, though, we have happily reconnected, and it's like we haven't missed a beat. Richie hasn't shared a lot about his war experience a half century ago. He put it in the past. But recently he thought perhaps he should offer some recollections so his children and grandchildren might know about that chapter of his life. And he figured he'd share his story with a wider audience. I'd like you to meet my lifelong friend, Richie Lauk. Let's talk about baseball. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> because that's where we got our start. We Douglas did. Park, Rock Island, Illinois, teaching kids how to hit and to run and to throw. We learned lessons in life there, I think, did we not? That was uh, some of the most fun times I've ever had when you and I were together and did nothing but uh, the Douglas Park issues uh, all over the, <laughs> all over Rock Island. We did. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, we learned a lot. We were coaches. We were players. We did a lot of fun. And that uh, those T-shirt teams that we had. Yeah. We're really a lot of fun. The little kids. Yeah, the little kids were a lot of fun. And when a batter came up, Dennis Jones, and I told him, get in the box, Dennis, I'm going to throw you a strike and you're going to hit it. He says, I don't want to get hit by the ball. And then I threw it and hit him in the head. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Memorable occasions. Memorable occasions, actually. Yes. Yes. But we did learn a lot about life and people and race. Oh, yeah. We learned a lot about that because, you know, we were in technically a minority neighborhood. Yes. Um but we learned a lot about fairness, I think, and good sportsmanship. Yeah, uh, we you always had to be fair because well, I lived down in the Arsenal courts, and that was you know that was probably ninety percent uh, black and only ten percent white, and uh, yeah, it was uh, a situation, and you know you treated everyone just like there wasn't any black or white. It was just. You were a kid, they were a kid, and you played together all the time, and you did nothing more than... It, it was fun. You didn't look at anybody differently. It was just uh, they were 
young kids just like you. They were playing ball just like you. They were having fun just like you, going to school with you just like you. Uh, you just got along with everybody. But I make this point because Rock Island, Illinois, when we were playing ball and coaching and that sort of thing, was far removed from Vietnam. We didn't have a vision. We knew that there was a war going on, but we had no real taste or feel for it because we were in our world, yeah. and that was 8,600 miles away, yeah. the other side of the earth. Yeah. Did you ever have any notion at one point in time that you might be called upon to go? No. How, how did that come about? I went to college. Uh, I went to Blackhawk. I started out. They had a draft at that point, okay? Right, so right. You know, I was drafted. I was number uh, 42 or something like that. And so it was a situation where I said, thought to myself, well, okay, I'm probably going to end up being drafted at some time. So I'll volunteer, which I did. And then uh, the rest was just kind of rolled at that point. I wasn't. It wasn't a situation where, I mean, as when I came back, why I ended up finishing up college on the on the GI Bill, which was great. So we were extremely poor. I wasn't necessarily an A student, so the 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 scholarships weren't around. I mean, I, I could play baseball, but it, it just seemed to be something that well, I didn't want to, but. Okay, I'll I'll do it because maybe it's the best thing to do at this point. Will it help me in the future? Uh, I think it will, and it has. And so it was one of those situations where I felt, okay, let's uh, let's take a break from what I'm doing, and we'll go do this. And then when we come back, I'll be better for it, and everybody will be. Better so for tell it. me about the day you enlisted. Then where did you go, and what did you sign up for, and and did you say I want to be Army? No, no. What happens is uh, I enlisted and then I got taken at five o'clock in the morning on September 24th of 69. I remember that date. And into Chicago. I was in a big room with a ton of other guys. And what happened was they were counting off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The eighth guy were to go over against a wall. So they did that for the whole entire room. And those guys standing up against the wall figured, hey, we got it pretty good. Something's going to happen here. Well, what happened was the drill, the, looked like a drill sergeant at that point, but the, uh, he came in and said, all right, you guys up against the wall, congratulations. You're now United States Marines. There's, there's an area right down the road here. Go, you're not here anymore. Go on down there. So those guys, there, all their faces turned rather white and uh, off they went. <laughs> they thought they were getting away with something, but un- they no, were get- no, 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 no. They ended up Marines. Uh huh. And so you remain in the line. You were not one of the eight, the number eight. What happened? Then? I was number seven. Oh, you came actually. close to becoming a Marine. So I was close. Uh, so then we got loaded into a uh, some vans, buses, and trekked off to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri mm-hmm. right. for basic training. Yeah. Did you squeeze yourself at any point in time and say, what am I doing here? Yeah, I squeezed myself a lot of times because I was, you know, it was one of those situations where as long as you didn't um, kept your head down and didn't stand out, didn't try to go too far doing anything, which I never did anyway, you just figured, okay, well, we'll, we'll survive whatever they can bring to me. So that's kind of the way I looked at it. Low profile. Low profile. When you're at Leonard Wood... Did you have any notion that your future months would be taking you to Vietnam? No. No, basically it was just one of those things to get through that. And then 
After that, then you go into advanced individual training. Right, AIT. Which was um, Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, right around the first of the year, because it was an eight-week situation, which would have brought me through the end of February, and I went over to Vietnam in the first week to 10 days of March. But no, you. I ended up being a, a medic, and I don't really know how that happened. I mean, it seemed as if, uh, you know, it wasn't one of those situations where they took aptitudes probably and said, well, this guy's cut out to be here, here, here. I don't think so. I think it was just a matter of the, it's like the Marines. They picked every seventh or eighth guy, you know. And, but and, you didn't see the picking process. No. You were just told, uh, you're going to be a medic, Richie. Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> so at the beginning of your arrival at Fort Sam Houston, you're told you're going to be a medic. Yeah. I, in fact, you get orders before you leave uh, basic. Okay. And it says, okay, you're going to Fort Sam Houston. You're, uh, it was 91 Bravo, I think. That's what a medic was. You're going to be a medic. You're going down here for medical training. So in eight short weeks, I became, as everyone calls you in, in the service, doc. I knew where I was going, and I knew what I was going to. I was going to be a medic somewhere. But I didn't know that, you know, Vietnam was in the, in the future. When all of you docs are together, are you talking about the possibility that you could end up going to Vietnam? You know, there wasn't a whole lot of chat about that because uh, I think everybody thought, well, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I mean, there's plenty of other places that we're not going to go. And I was really one of the more unfortunate ones because there were only out of, I can't remember exactly, there must have been 40 or 50 of us. There were only four or five that went to Vietnam. Out of all that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Everybody else, you know, got stationed, I mean, within the United States or if you went to Germany, I think. But, you know, I wasn't one of those. Do you remember the day you were told you were going to Vietnam? Uh, Yeah. It was toward the end, uh, maybe the last week of AIT training. And the, the orders came out. And then we were all comparing orders and I had three pretty good friends and they were all going elsewhere one's going to California and one went to Washington I think and he said where are you going I said well I'm going to Vietnam oh good <laughs> it's one of those oh good okay well I guess that's you know what are you gonna do I mean so how did you process that I thought long and hard about it I came home and um, you just think okay well my my father was an Iwo Jima uh, my uncle was in the Air Force. So I figured, well, okay, it's, uh, you know, well, I don't have any choice at this point. So I'll go do what I have to do, keep my head down and try to be everything that I can be and, and the best. And, uh, maybe I'll come home. Okay. What did Mama Flo have to say? Mama Flo wasn't real happy about the whole situation. Uh, but, uh, she, you know, she said, well, she was rather, I loved her dearly. She's a little naive in things. But she said, no, you're going to be someplace where you're going to be careful, aren't you? I said, yeah, Mom, I'd be careful. I'll, I'll, I'll write you all the time, which I did. The problem was that when you wrote, sometimes you ended up with a little bit of dirt, mud on the letters. And she always asked me about that. How come they're so dirty? Where are you? I said, well, I'm just, you know, in areas sometimes where they get, you get a little bit of rain, which we did. And uh, so I just... Uh, she used to send me boxes of stuff like, uh, you know, all we had was for rations. We'd end up 
with a couple of cans of every three days you get rationed. A couple of cans of Coke. Usually guys wanted beer, so I had all the Coke I wanted because I didn't drink beer. So, hey, I'll trade you. Okay, fine. So, but she sent me Kool-Aid and you know, all kinds of stuff, cookies, and so my whole platoon had a. We had a. It was a great deal when when. when Hey, Doc's mom sent some stuff. Let's go see him. Okay, so that was a good thing. Yeah. That was a good thing. Tell me about the day that you arrived in country. Oh, well, you know, uh, get off the plane, and we got herded in, and the last, uh, the first song I heard was Love Grows or My Rosemary Goes by Edison Lighthouse. So I, I remembered that for some reason. And then um, they, they herded us off. They said, okay, we're, you know, you're going here, you're going there. I went to uh, Three Corps, which was Fugvin, Rocket City, they called it. I didn't know that at that time. But. So we got herded off into different uh, buses and then taken to the airfield. And there were certain C-130s that went different directions. And we were going to, to uh, Fugvin. And that's so I went there and got off and uh, then you walked around and walked towards where I was going to be staying and then you started to think you know oh god this is the real deal this is this is this is not good your first cavalry yeah and the history of First Cavalry goes way back, doesn't it? Way back to George Custer. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, First Cav, 7th uh, Regiment. I was in Bravo Company. It was four companies, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. And there were four platoons in each company. And the platoons were maybe 10, 12 guys apiece. And so uh, what you did was the medic was always the guy in the middle of the road. You know, you, when you were going any place because you didn't know where you were going to go. They said, you know, the, the, the orders would come down, and they'd say, okay, we're going, and you would get sortied, you would get helicoptered out to wherever you were going to be. And then you were going to do your whatever directionals you were going to take. Your boots on the ground at that yeah. point, yeah. You had no idea where you were going to go. You were just, I was always going to be in the middle. There was no cross on my helmet or anything like that. I had a weapon. Um, so you just one of those things where the problem was that when you, when you did hit contact, normally when you hit contact, whether it was NVA or Viet Cong, they would take a couple of shots at you. They all didn't have weapons. So when they took a couple of shots at you, they, didn't, they knew the Americans would fall to the ground. And when they fell to the ground, they'd take off because they couldn't combat all the weaponry because we all, we all had weapons. Yeah, so it was one of those situations that uh, that's the way it started. One of the sad facts was, in my Bravo company, I was the only medic to survive out of four. So, over what period of time? Well, I think most of that time was happened. Cambodia, I think, was in May. I believe for the month of May or part, better part of the month of May. So 
that was a really, really bad time because normally when you, like I said, when they shot at you, they would take a pot shot or two and then take off. In Cambodia, they had bunker complexes. They had a lot of areas. They had a lot of people, a lot of guys, and a lot of weapons. So you ended up with a lot of issues, a lot of problems. And uh, that's where a couple of my nicks got. Uh, so I, I ended up, uh, you know, you would have to go. Something were to happen up front, you'd have to go up front. You'd have to, you know, do whatever you could with somebody. Usually you'd pull them back to get out of the line of fire. So that was uh, that case. Do you remember the first time you were on patrol and took com- uh, took uh, fire? Well, not exactly the first time, but the first time in, in Cambodia was really the time where you knew what the situation was because we walked into a bunker complex, which meant they were kind of circled around us, and we were walking through. The lieutenant up front, usually you had a point man, you had a lieutenant, and then there was um, uh, maybe a gunner, uh, the 60 machine gun would be behind that. Then a couple more guys, then the medic, and then you'd have, you have the the, uh, the far gunner would be on the on the back, and then you'd have regular riflemen in between. But um, that that was the day that we lost a lieutenant, we lost a point man. That was uh, one of those situations where you're going up to see what you can do. You can't help. A lot of fire still around, so you grabbed them and pulled them back. The lieutenant was a skinny guy, so he wasn't a problem, but they point guy was he had a little beef on him so it was kind of a tough deal to get him out of there because you wanted to get out of there as quick as possible because you know there was still stuff going around you how often are you hearing doc doc all the time and what do you do i mean you, you're being pulled in different directions yeah you just go you know you try to do it to, you know you you go to whomever is hurt the worst you know basically i mean if somebody you know if somebody just got nicked or whatever the case may be you say what's your problem uh, well, I got, you know, I, uh, you're all right. Uh, we got a, got a, I got somebody up here that I got to go to. And that didn't happen that often. But it did happen in Cambodia more, more, than, more than once because Cambodia was a really bad situation for the U.S. at least, at least when I could tell, because we uh, pretty much took a, a whacking over there. They had a lot of people. They had a lot of, and they, they showed us that we shouldn't have been there. And uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we, we, coming in, we took fire. Going out, we took fire. So it was. You're uh, airborne at that point. In fact, I was the third from the from the tail end in a in chopper. Now I had a 60 pound aid bag on my back. Okay, so I had to hump that every day. So we're, when we're leaving, uh, our our chopper starts to go up, uh, and it takes a round in the rotor. And about 30 or 40 feet, maybe 50, we came right back down. Now the problem was, we were leaving Cambodia and we were taking fire. There was six or eight of us on that chopper, so we had to divvy up in the last couple of choppers, and those choppers were really heavy. There wasn't any place for me on one, so I had to sit on the skids, and they had my, my bag, so I said, hold on, please. If you don't, I'm going to be taking a nosedive here, and I don't have a chute. So uh, that was, and it seemed like we went probably 100 miles, but it probably was a mile or two. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was uh, that was kind of a, that was probably the hairiest situation that i that i i was in I would you're think. you're on the skid of the chopper a huey right yeah you're taking fire yep and that's when you got hit no i never got hit there i got hit when i was on the ground i got some shrapnel in the back and then that was that just burned that was not a problem i i saw that when i got back but no i didn't take i i got hit and i did not get hit then 
it was luckily I mean, it was flipping around, but uh, there were, but I didn't get hit with anything at that point. But you're a Purple Heart times three. Yes. Uh, tell me about those. Well, the one uh, it was a uh, nighttime situation, and we took some mortar rounds. And you know, if you're everybody takes turns in watch in a watch. Okay, so you're out there for a couple hours, then you go back to bed. Because what happens, you know, you basically go to bed when it's dark, starts getting dark, and you wake up when it starts getting light. So there's a lot of nighttime. So, and we got mortared a number of times. And the one time was a mortar round that came in, and I was sitting up where the two of us were on the in the front where we had put camp, place camp. And so uh, I I felt a little burn in my you know as I got whacked. I got it felt like just somebody took a little. I took a bat to my my leg real softly, not not hard, but a little softly. I said, "What? What's that?" So I didn't even look at it until the next morning. I saw it was a little piece that had stuck on my on the on the outside. So I just pulled it off, and it was shrapnel. Yeah, I got another piece of shrapnel in the back when they got mortared again. When we were getting a log, we were being logged. We got logged every three or four days. We got what new, is it? What logged? What's that mean? New clothing. Mm-hmm. We got food, which would be the the long range reconnaissance uh, type. You know, you had to fire them up with water and little C four in the bottom, and uh, and pop. And guys, one you know, guys that smoked, which I didn't. Uh, I'd exchange. They give me cigarettes, and I exchange cigarettes for pop. So I was always had six or eight pops in my bag. So I had sixty pounds of stuff and and a lot of pop and a lot of pop. <laughs> pop in the press box. Pop in the press box. <laughs> And, and so, you know, you you get that every three or four days. Now, they knew that you were going to get logged. So every once in a while, they'd take pot shots at you. We had a guy named Denny Barrett. The, he he volunteered for a second tour. Why? I don't know, but he did. So he's just getting put down in our unit, okay? And we're taking shots. We're taking a lot of pot shots. We were, There was about six or eight of us, and he said, let's go after him. He just got there. Okay, he's, all of a sudden he's gung ho and he wants to go after these people, and uh, I, you know, there was a lot of us, and I, no, no, we're not, we're not going anywhere until we know what's going on here. He took off, and he got shot, mm. and he was about six, eight, ten feet away from us. He was leaning up against a tree, so I had to go out there to him, and you know, he was, he got shot, and he was got shot in the neck, and uh, so. I, I tried to do what I could do, but uh, I, I was pinned down. I couldn't go anywhere, so I had to wait until uh, it kind of le- they they took off and he was gone. So he came out in the morning, went back in the evening. You know that that didn't happen very often, but it it did happen to people that, uh, at least from my perspective, what I saw, when they ended up being a bit on the um, gung ho end, yeah, yeah. pushing the pedal, pushing the, you know, it's just to me, I've never been that way. So it was one of those deals where you just kind of, you have to slow down and maybe in a way for you, even though the medic was a terribly high risk spot to be in, yeah. You're tending to the needs of fellow soldiers who go down, and, and maybe that's more in keeping with your nature. You're not out leading the patrol and shooting somebody with a machine gun. 
Probably so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, um, you just had to, you know, you, you had people that were, um, you were responsible for, you felt, and you got to know all these guys. You were friends with all of them. And uh, you just kind of had to uh, make sure that if something happened, why well, you could help. The best you can do a lot of times is uh, if somebody got hurt, somebody got hit, you'd uh, do what you could do, pressure dressings, whatever the case may be. You'd always have a medevac. They'd be in there pulling these guys out. And that's what you, you know, you hope you could um, stop things, curtail things. You know, it can, whatever was happening, you could try and, uh, and, and ease it a little bit so that once the medevac got in there and they could get him back to the rear. So many of these horrible images are ha- happening right in front of you. You're seeing them and you're holding people and trying to keep life going for some of them. Yeah. Did, did you, you just re- react instinctively? You just do what you're trained to do or are you, are you having trouble with that? Is that an image that's bothersome either at the time or then later on when you go back to catch a few winks of sleep? Do you think about that stuff? Yeah. You think about it all the time, but I guess the thing is, when you say instinctive, yeah, it probably is. I mean, you you know these guys. You you, you sleep with them. You, you're up daily with them. You, you know them all by name. You know their families. You know what's going on. And uh, you, you want to help. And so when something happens to one of your friends and it's your job, then you just, everything kicks in. You go where you need to go. Is it reckless? Well, no, not really, because... It's your job, so to speak, and you need to go help. And I guess that's, uh, you know, and like you said, I mean, being a medic is a, um, it, uh, a short tenured position, I guess. Yeah, what, what you were telling me, it's the estimated time of survival for a medic in Vietnam was what? It, it was somewhere between 7 and 14 days. And in, when in contact, it said that was 6 seconds. I don't know. That's just the information I was reading. Now, you can probably read whatever, but I do know that uh, medics came and went. Not all perished, but there were some that were injured and had to go back. Did you think about that in the field? I really didn't. I mean, it was it was one of those things uh, that you just, uh, people can say that they're brave and they, they don't think about this and don't think about that. And don't think, I did. I thought about it all. Uh, was I scared? Absolutely, 100%, 24-7. You just had to be that way because I figured if I would at least be cognizant of everything I was doing, no chances, be cautious, and uh, but you had to help your people. And that's, you know, you, you put yourself at risk sometimes doing that, but you, you had to make sure that you didn't. I, I do that today. I, I am probably overly cautious in doing things, but a lot of that's my military backing too, mm-hmm. such as trying to be on places on time, trying to, you know, keep things neat. I mean, that's, you know, you kind of learn some things in the military that kind of sticks with you as you, as you get older. You had two shrapnel wounds in Cambodia. You go back into country, into Vietnam. What was the third wound you had? The third wound was right around, uh, it was the first part of September of that year. We'd set up camp. Usually when it got st- when it got dark, why well, you had you'd set up camp, you know, and set your perimeter around. So we had set up camp, and it was just kind of twilight. And what they would do a lot of times is lob mortar rounds in on us. They were popping off all over the place, and the guys were getting hit with uh, little hot pieces of the shrapnel. 
And I really didn't even know I had it until I was going around. And uh, I, there was two guys. One guy got hit in the leg, and uh, I, I fixed him up. And there was another guy that got hit in the arm. It was mainly just the nothing serious, just the, the, the shrapnel that had, was flying around. And all of a sudden, I felt, uh, God, my, my leg's burning up here on the left side. So when I went down there, and there it was. It was uh, a piece of shrapnel that was stuck on my leg, basically. And so I just kind of pulled it off and with some skin. I wrapped that one up, too, and it, was, uh, it didn't hurt. It didn't. I mean, it was it stung for a while, but I just put some lotion on it. You realize how lucky you were? Oh, yeah. I was lucky to come back. I mean, it was one of those things. As I said before, my whole battalion, which was uh, Bravo Company, 1st Cavalry of the 7th, we had four platoons, and I was the, uh, when we went into Cambodia, we were only in there for 30 days. When we got back, we were in the the, uh, the rear for a while, for a few days, until we got sent out again. At that point, I did find out that the rest of my medic crew, which are the been one in each platoon, well, they were all gone. So I was the only one that was left, and then you, you start to look back, and you start asking questions about, well, how long did medics last in, in Vietnam? Not too long. And so you think about it, and I don't think about it a ton, but, you know, it's one of those things you, wow, um, I was really, really, really lucky. It is your nature, I think, to want to make friends and to keep them close. Uh, but some people in the military, because it's a life and death situation, don't want to extend friendships because it's too painful when you lose a friend in battle. But that didn't occur to you. I mean, you weren't thinking in those terms. You, no. you had you had guys you were with, and you got to know them and love them and take care of them. Yeah, because that's Doc's that's, mission. That's that's your that's your your job. That's your job. One one funny thing. Oh, I I slept in a hammock. Okay, all the time. Why do you sleep in a hammock? Because you had mortars coming in, you know, shrapnel goes up, so if something happens close. Well, quite frankly, there were a lot of snakes, a lot of vermin that rolled on the ground. I was just basically, I'd say, eh, I'll take my chances. I mean, because there was a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of things I don't even know that <laughs> they, had, they had names for. But uh, one... There was a big guy named George Van. What was his last name? More, more. He was a. Um, he was an, uh, an an infantryman, but he was a. He was from uh, General Motors. He had a pretty good position, but he volunteered to go into the army. And he volunteered for Vietnam. He did make it back okay. I remember that. But everybody slept in uh, tents, you know, little small little hooches, and on air mattresses. And one night. You know, everything's just pitch dark. You can't hear anything. Well, he was pretty close to me, and I heard a, just a bloodthirsty yell. I said, oh, God, what's that? So I, I went over there. And you, you couldn't use any lights, I mean, because you don't. But I knew where he was, and I, I started yelling, George, what's going on? He says, something bit me. I said, oh, boy. So we, uh, we pounded his air mattress, which was flat at that time. I said, all right, well, George, you can, uh, nothing's going to happen until the morning. We'll medevac you out of here. But So about, oh, maybe 10, 15 minutes later, his calf was the size of a basketball. 
I said, I don't know what's wrong. He said, well, he, they'd always say, Doc, what's wrong? I'd say, I had no clue. We got to send you back. That's for an actual doctor to tell you what's going on. But uh, so the next morning, we looked in under his mattress, and I swear there was a black scorpion that was about the size of my hand. He was huge. And we got him, but he got George too early. So, but George was okay. You know, you know, they took him back and got him all fixed up. Fixed up. He was. Did he come back to combat? Yeah, yeah. He was a good guy. He's huge guy, like you. About six four, six five. I mean, he was thin. He was. Uh, he was just a, a really nice guy. I had a lot of really nice people that I dealt with, for a long, long time, and, thank, thankfully, most of them, made it back. Let me come back to Cambodia when you're going in. Okay. First Cavs going in. And this is, uh, I think, uh, we're talking about April or May yeah. of 1970. Uh -huh. What are they telling you? We're going into Cambodia to do what? Do they do your commanders share with you what the mission is and no. where you're going to be going? No sharing. Nothing. We took sorties everywhere. I mean, we, were, we would go into different areas all the time. And there was one guy that was in journalism in my area named George Avery. He was, uh, he seemed to be in the know a little bit. He would ask a lot of questions. He was the inquisitive one in our, in our crew. And he said, I think we're going into Cambodia. And most of the guys say, why? I don't know. So we're just, so basically that's what it was. We went in and you knew from the time you went in with the, we were taking fire. And you knew at that point, hey, this is not a good place. So we went down into an area and uh, went into a, um, they call them all landing zones. And from the time we got there, I mean, it was a daily, if not nightly routine. We would take fire. We would take mortar rounds at night. They knew where we were. They knew that we, we ran in packs. And at, unfortunately, they were running in packs too at this point. They had a lot of uh, artillery. They had a lot of uh, weapons. They were situated in bunker complexes. We didn't know where they were. We had a lot of casualties. They hit us with a lot of everything. And when you're in Cambodia, you're, you're air mobile. You're going into LZs with choppers. Mm -hmm. So you're not on the ground until you get on the ground and do your right. patrols looking for bunkers right. and right. weapons, caches, yep. that sort of thing. Did, were, did you ever come across, did your patrol ever come across uh, big weapons caches? Yes. Yes, and uh, there was a lot of AK-47s. There was a lot of everything in there, and it was a huge, huge area. So we divvied those things up because at that point, you could bring some of that home. So I thought it would be kind of uh, at least have a memento. It wasn't much of a, I, I'm not a uh, – I don't use guns. I mean, I, I don't shoot. I don't do anything. I, I did a little bit in the service, but since then, no, no, that's not me. So I had this AK-47 that was always all greased up, and, and I had it in my huge bag that kept in the aid station. Guys that were out in the field, this is your stuff, and when you get to go home, then you take that bag home. Well, unfortunately, I mean, you can't check it all the time, you know. So when I, it was time for me to come home, well, my bag was gone. Mm -hmm. All my stuff was gone. 
I had extra clothing in there. So when I came home, I came home with the clothes on my back, and that was it. So, I mean, that was, that's okay. I came home. So that was the most important thing. You're the most important part. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I had a lot of pictures. I had a lot of stuff, letters. I had a lot of stuff in my bag, which meant nothing to no one else. Right. But needless to say, you know. When you were in Cambodia, you didn't probably have a whole lot of time to think about this, but the, your journalist friend who says, I think we're going into Cambodia, did you guys know at that point in time the reaction back home? You're in the field, so you're, like I said, 8,600 miles away. You don't yeah. know really what's going on back here, but there's a big fire brewing over this. You know, the war is supposed to be winding down. Troops are becoming home. Vietnamization is supposed to be happening. And yet the perception is the war is widening. You guys were not aware of no, that. Not even the journalist. And we used to get, um, there was a paper, Stars and Stripes, yeah. that came out. Once in a while. I mean, it didn't get out to the field very often. My uh, my parents, my mom probably wasn't on top of those types of things where she could ask me about anything like that. She was really more just concerned that it, whether I was upright, if I was doing okay. And that was okay, too. That's my mom. I loved her dearly. But no, we didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know anything, and I was pretty astute with stuff. I mean, I knew... I kept my nose to the grindstone as much as I could, but when you're out there, it's just you're. It's surreal. I mean, you 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 don't know. You're hoping that there's not another. You don't hear, hear another shot. You don't hear anything. You want it to be quiet. You want to go ahead and and move around where you're supposed to move, and not hear anything and not have anything like that. Most of the time in Vietnam, it was probably like that. Okay, we we had some contact, but. Nothing like Cambodia. Cambodian was a bad place. In one of our travels, we came upon an area where one of our companies had been through. But um, anyway, we came upon an area where uh, the Cambodians had done some things to some of our uh, some of our guys. They had uh, used them for a, um, a skewer, skinned them, and left them to uh, rot. And, uh, that, you know, those types of things, you, you see those in your mind, you know, and you know that once again, like I told you before, I've been pretty lucky that I've compartmentalized everything and pushed that to the side, said, okay, that happened there. But when I go back, I'm going to try and not see that anymore. I'm going to try and not think about that. And for the most part, over all these years, 50 some years, I've done that. But, uh, this is just something that I wanted to relive for my kids, my kids' kids, and let them know that, you know, what happened over there, at least from my perspective. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to do this. Somewhere in that, in a compartment back here, is that image that's horrible. Yeah, and it's there. Yeah, fortunately, you've been able to keep it there. Yeah, but those things affect everybody who comes back from war when they witness that stuff. Yeah, and it has to do with PTSD. Yeah, and you have PTSD. Yes, it doesn't keep you awake at night. I'm presuming. No. So how? 
Let me ask you first of all, how long were you in Cambodia? And we were there probably, I think maybe a month or maybe a little bit longer. It wasn't very long because it was one of those uh, situations where you ran into something every day. They had a lot of firepower there and we weren't supposed to be there. <laughs> they didn't want us there. And the sooner that the orders were to get out of there, the better. And that day when the orders came and you knew you were leaving Cambodia, what was the reaction in, in Bravo? Hallelujah. Let's get out of here. This is not good. We're, we've lost one guy. That was Joe, and I can't think of his last name, but that was one of the casualties. It was one of those things that uh, you just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. But you knew that when you left, they were going to keep, keep taking pot shots at you because they knew you had to come into certain areas to land choppers to get out. I had to dish out malaria pills. One large pill on Sunday, and then there was a small pill every day for the next six days. Well, everybody didn't take those things. I took them religiously, and I got malaria, naturally. So I'd went back to the rear for a couple of days, and they fed me a fill of uh, antibiotics. And when I went back out, my group was just about ready to come back in. There was another group that was going out. And I, they said, well, okay, why don't you go with them? It'll only be three or four days. Then they'll be back and you join your crew, your crew. Because they didn't have a medic. I didn't know why. Well, I found out later, of course, that he wasn't around anymore. So I went out with those guys. There was only five or six of us, as I remember. It was close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I do know that, where they dumped us out. And I tried to ask. There was a lieutenant, and so there weren't many of us. And we were in a... a, a, a we didn't do a, a lot of traveling. I asked the uh, lieutenant, I said, hey, what's going on here? What are we just sitting here for? Well, there's a lot of traffic on Ho Chi Minh. So what we're going to do is we're going to put Claymore mines up every night for the next few nights and see if we can't take care of a few guys. So there was only five or six of us. So thank God if there was a huge amount of NVA or Viet Cong come down, it wouldn't have been a good deal. But there wasn't. There was just a handful of guys. In fact, one night there was a uh, one of the claymores went off. It wounded a guy. Wounded a. It was he was a Viet Cong. The lieutenant wanted to take him back to our base camp because they figured, okay, we can get interrogate. Some yeah. Now he is, was really wounded bad. So Doc, can you fix him up? So you try to do that, but he was really in bad shape. I said, well, you know, I'll hump him to wherever we're gonna be. You know, but we got to get him. If you want any information out of him, you know, you we got to get him back. So they were sending a bird out for us as we'd been there for four days. He was moaning. I mean, he was really hurting. I couldn't do anything for him. As we humped and humped and humped, once we got into the helicopter and started our way back, well, he had passed away. He had bled out. That was a hairy situation because Ho Chi Minh Trail was heavily used. But I thought to myself later on, I said, wow. And we could have been captured. We could have been killed. I mean, we were out there like sitting ducks. When you're in these situations, you have to do what you're ordered to do. But I'm wondering if you're asking the question, what are we doing here? And can anyone give us an answer? Does this make sense that we are here? I think you can ask as many questions as you wanted to, but I don't know if too many people had any answers. Did it make any sense? No. I mean, all we we were worried about was surviving one more day wherever we had to go that day we would go we would protect each other hopefully that night we would go to bed and get up the next day and do the same thing and hopefully not see anybody 
were you conscious of your timetable, the number of weeks that you'd spent? Did you do a countdown in your head? Always. Yeah. Everybody knew how many days they had mm-hmm. uh, before the free bird took you back. Yeah, you knew exactly how many days it was. So When you get close to the end of the tour, you're especially cautious because you don't want to put yourself, have yourself be put in harm's way at the tail end of your, your mission. Exactly. So when you get down to like the final few weeks, what were you doing? Did they let you come out of the field? Yeah, the last two weeks, I spent almost all my time out in the field, except for I think I came back right about the 1st of March of 71, and I think right around right around Valentine's Day or a little bit later. So I had two weeks in the, in the, back in the um, hospital, what do you not, aid station, really what it was, back in the, uh, in the rear in Phuc Vinh. So one of my main duties was uh, they used to send us into Phuc Vinh. We, uh, we would give shots to the um, ladies of the evening that were in Phuc Vinh because uh, a lot of the fellows were ended up with uh, gonorrhea. Mm-hmm. So we would go in. We'd, we'd give the girls their shots, try to keep them in line. And then, of course, we'd have to keep the boys in line also. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then always, you always, there were some guys that were really just, uh, they were real jerks about everything. You know, they're really bad guys. And when they needed to be uh, given a shot, why? Penicillin really stings. So you could make it feel really good to someone by putting it in very slowly. Or if somebody you didn't like, you could just jam it in there as fast as you could, and uh, he would uh, <laughs> he would not be sitting down for a little while. <laughs> and so, Doc, did you administer such uh, medicine? I did. <laughs> <laughs> So when time comes to come home, do you remember the thoughts that you had when you reached the end and your time was set and you're going to get on the free bird? Once again, it was kind of surreal. Okay, I'm going to get on this big bird here and I'm going back to the Quad Cities, going back home. And I thought to myself, a whole, almost a whole year has gone by. As you went through it day by day, you said, oh man, how long is this going to be? This is going to take forever. But as now, as you get a little few years on you, you look back and you say, wow, these years go by pretty fast. And that year went by pretty fast. So I just, when I sat down in the, um, in, in the plane, it was just kind of a uh, relief. You know, you kind of could exhale. You could feel like, wow, I'm going to go back where nobody's, you know, going to be doing anything, be taking any pot shots at me or anything like that. Don't have any of the issues. And so it was uh, just a huge feeling of relief. When you landed in the Quad Cities... Put your feet on the ground, terra firma, Moline, Illinois. Yeah, it was a good feeling. Absolutely. It was a a feeling of um, just relief. And and there weren't any, uh, there were no fanfares or anything of anybody coming back from. Did you catch any anger from people Mm -mm. at the airport? Mm -mm. Moline was, you know, wasn't wasn't much out there. I mean, it was. uh, What was the, uh, what was the greeting at home like? Well, uh, my mom was, uh, she looked like she'd went age 10 years. That was the sad part of it. In fact, in one time where I got wounded, there were two guys, military men in uniform, that came out to my mom and dad's house. 
just to let her know that I was wounded. And you're okay. But I'm okay. <laughs> Thanks for doing that, fellas. <laughs> but, you know, first thing they think is... Oh, you're dead. I'm gone. I thought to myself later on, why would they do that? I mean, I was only I was only wounded. And then I looked at, and I saw the paper and it said, do you, do you authorize or do you want representation to go out and tell your parents... And you had signed that. I did. I did sign it. And I said, why? Why did you do that? I did that, dummy. What, am I, <laughs> what do you do to do that for? But, you know, when you're 20 years old, you probably don't think that, well. I, I'm I, not going to die. No. And plus, you know, it, uh, I s- sign a lot of papers as you're going in. So it might have been one of that was just stuck in there that I didn't even read and I just signed it. As I look back and I thought, wow, I probably aged my mother even more at when when she had that, I'm sure she was relieved when they said that he was just wounded. But, wow, I put her through something that uh, I, I didn't have to put her through. She would give you a spanking. Oh, boy. <laughs> you haven't really shared a lot of these thoughts with anybody. And is that part of your compartmentalization? Well, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I, I kind of, I guess it is. I, I just wanted to uh, try to put that into a di- not into a different stage of life. Yeah, that was my young stage when I had to do this, and it was there were a lot of not so nice things that had to be done, and but I did those, and then I moved into my middle stage, and that was getting married to my lovely wife, having a couple of kids. Now i got grandkids. Um, and now, of course, as you get a little bit older, why, it just seemed like, well, maybe I should be a little more f- sharing as to what I did over there. Not everything, but at least to a point where at least they know that I did what I did, I guess. You want your family to know these things. Yeah, I want them to at least at least know that you know when I was overseas, when I did when Vietnam, even though they don't know what Vietnam is, uh, this is what I did. This is what Grandpa did. This is what Dad did. And, you know, and then they probably will end up saying, wow, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. A lot of guys, when they come back, have real difficulty. To this day, half a century later, they're wrestling with ghosts. And I'm wondering why you're able to not have to deal with that. Maybe you are, quietly, but it's not affecting your everyday routine. You're a happy person. Yeah. You're living a good life. Yeah. Uh, And you've been able to stick it back. It's living back in the past, and I'm not going there. And it's not bothering you? No. No, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I uh, There's a lot of things that I saw that uh, were, were really, really bad. I mean, really horrible things. But I, and one thing that bothers me today now is with this Ukraine I mean, looking, seeing what's happening again uh, over there is just, well, first of all, it's senseless. I mean, it shouldn't happen at all. I mean, but, you know, it's just, uh, well, now a lot of those people are doing what they have to do to survive. And that's the sad part of it. And, and I, that's what I kind of did. I just, okay, I've got to do this. I've always been an easygoing guy. i got to do this. I mean, this is going to get me through where I need to be. And uh, I've never had uh, the night sweats, the night anything. I've been pretty lucky. You know, I've, uh, I just feel that uh, I have tried to uh, keep it 
separate from everything else that I've done. What did you learn about yourself from your military experience? Well, it, it showed me that, uh, you know, what things I've done and what I did there, maybe they're a lot more significant than they, what I thought they were. I've done a lot of things. I've been, uh, you know, a lot of pats on the back. As a medic, you know, you end up doing what you do. And by doing what you do, you end up, people look and say, you know, hey, this guy did a lot of stuff under fire. It's kind of difficult to put into to words, uh, but I just thought, uh, as I look back and say, well, I did some pretty nice things for others. Well, you weren't looking for adulation. No. But you got a bronze star. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what else? I got a silver star, and uh, I got the three purple hearts. So, I, you know, and like I said, medics... They're heralded because they do what they do, and uh, those things happen. And because you're a medic and you save what you're, you do the job that you're supposed to do, well, they say, okay, well, you should have this or have that. That makes me proud. I mean, I did some things that probably never, ever thought I could do. And then when I got back, you know, you and I were apart for decades. It was almost like we left on a Friday after we did Diamonds in, in, in Rock Island and we went home for the weekend, and then we met again Monday morning. That's what the decades were in there. They were all compressed. But it was just like you and I, nothing ever yeah. hasn't changed. Yeah, We're the same people. We're, we're older, well, sure. But, I mean, we, uh, we're the same buddies that we were, and that's, that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. That's a good thing. Have you ever been to the Vietnam Memorial Wall? I have not. I want, I want to go. I mean, there's... There's a number of people that I, I, I know that are gone that I would like to, you know. As I've gotten older, I, you know, I get to a point where uh, I get choked up quite a bit anymore. Never did before. But as I get a little older, I get even worse, which is okay. Sorry, right. I mean, that's I'm entitled to be that way. But uh, I think that that, uh, that Vietnam Wall would probably, I'd, uh, I'd have some trouble there probably. That's okay. A lot of people do. Yeah. And even people who weren't there, yeah. when they look at those names. Yeah. And it seems endless. Yeah. Yeah. You're a brave man, Richie Lauk. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, I know about that. Richie came home from the war and returned to the diamond. His military experience, he likes to say, cost him only one season of baseball. Perhaps his love of the game and his eager return to it helped insulate him somewhat from the horrors of battlefield recollections. But like many other vets, mindful of life's clock, Richie's chosen to tell the story of that chapter in his life so that those who love him might know what he endured a half century ago. His baseball buddy and lifelong friend is honored to share his story. Please consider sharing this podcast if you wish, and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. 
To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.